What happens when three scholars band together to challenge ridiculous research articles by creating even worse ones themselves as a hoax? Well, when they're found out, some call them heroes, some call them devils, and some call them dangerous. But I call them interesting. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. In 1996, a physics professor, Dr. Alan Sokol, wanted to test the intellectual rigor of postmodern cultural studies. To do so, he wrote an article entitled Transgressing the Boundaries Towards the Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. This article was full of absolute nonsense, but Dr. Sokol believed it would be accepted by an academic journal anyway. And he was right. This hoax called the Sokol Affair, or Sokol Hoax, caused an uproar in academia because it questioned the validity of social science commentary on scientific inquiry. Now let's fast forward to 2017. Three academics, editor Helen Pluckrose, mathematician James A. Lindsay, and philosopher Peter Boghossian, did something similar, but bigger. With the same purpose, they wanted to test the intellectual rigor of academic journals in the fields of gender, queer, race, and fat studies, what they call as a whole grievance studies. They wanted to see if they could produce absurd articles using catchphrases and biases they observed in academic journals covering cultural studies and get them published. Well, they did. An ethnography of restaurant masculinity, themes of objectification, sexual conquest, male control, and masculine toughness in a sexually objectifying restaurant. Accepted Human reactions to rape culture and queer performativity at urban dog parks in Portland, Oregon. Accepted and published. The intersectional reply to neoliberal and choice feminism. Accepted but not yet Who are published. they to judge? Overcoming anthropometry in a framework for fat bodybuilding. Accepted and Homo published. hysteria and transphobia through receptive penetrative sex toy use. Accepted Male explicit and, and implicit associations about women in society by immersive pornography consumption. Revise and When the joke is on you, a feminist perspective on how positionality influences satire. Accepted, New not yet meetings published. and the meaning of sisterhood, a poetic super portrayal of the feminist spirituality. Feminist epistemology and super intelligent artificial intelligence safety research. My struggle to dismantle my whiteness, a critical race examination of whiteness from Strategies within whiteness. For dealing with Cis-normative discursive aggression in the workplace. Progressive Disruption, staff, criticism, self-enforcement, and Under review. Revise and resubmit. Of the 20 nonsense articles the trio wrote, seven passed peer review and were published, and one even received recognition. Seven more were on the verge of publication before the hoax was uncovered. This academic project has been dubbed Sokol Squared as a nod to Dr. Sokol's hoax article from 1996. While it may sound like this topic is only of interest to academia, 
the authors believe it is relevant, in fact crucial, for everyone to understand the implications of what is going on in universities and academic journals, because the knowledge produced there affects us all. We spoke with three of the so-called squared hoaxers, or academic whistleblowers, as they would say, for today's program. Our first guest is Dr. Peter Bogosian, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Portland State University. He's a national speaker for the Centre of Inquiry and an international speaker for the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. Peter's position at the university has been in a dubious state because he may not be able to continue. At least that's the intent as read by some. You see, Portland State University now seems positioned to sanction Dr. Bogosian for daring to declare that, like the proverbial emperor, some social science scholars have no clothes. Dr. Peter Bogosian, would you explain the difference, please, between an academic journal article versus a regular article? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great question. So when you publish in an academic article, an academic article, it's called a peer-reviewed article. And the peer-reviewed process is when your peers, when colleagues who have an expertise in the area, read it and say, okay, this is good, this is not good, this needs work, and then it's accepted into the to the broader canon of knowledge. And when that gets accepted, we call that knowledge. So a peer-reviewed article, usually for professors to get tenure, which is a job for life, they have to publish one a year in general in the humanities for seven years, and then they, they receive uh, tenure. So a regular article is not peer-reviewed. So if I want to write an, an op-ed for a newspaper, or if I want to write an opinion piece, or my peers don't look at that, an editor looks at that and says, aha, this is good or not. Now, anybody can publish on a blog, anybody can publish on uh, their own site. That's very, very different from a peer-reviewed article. How does this have greater significance than a regular article? Because there are many people who are not part of the academic community. There are many people who are not necessarily involved in universities or colleges who are just as happy to read non-peer-reviewed things in, in newspapers, as you've mentioned. What makes an academic paper so distinct? That's a wonderful question. An academic paper is distinct because the general community, both inside and outside of academia, point to those papers and say, this is knowledge. This is how we know. And then those papers inform public policy. And what are the ramifications for society? Well, the ramifications depending on the area. So if we want to build a bridge, for example, we don't just invent bridge building ex nihilo, you know, from nothing. If we want to build a bridge, we look at the the literature on how to build a bridge, we have experts who've passed a formal process, like in medicine, for example. You take a test, a peer-reviewed test, a board-certified test, and your peers make that test. And if you pass that test, then you have domain-specific expertise and you can practice medicine and prescribe drugs, etc. But if that process is corrupted, if there's something in that literature and in that scholarship, what happens then is that people act on what they think is knowledge but is not knowledge. So they do what they think is in their own best interest, in their best interest of their communities, but it is not. They've been led astray. So 
over time, we've come to trust the peer review process is something we can rely upon that if it is in a peer review journal, it is knowledge. I can rely upon this. I can use whatever this set of facts is or whatever is reported, and I can use this to make a better life. I can construct conditions outside of myself that bring myself and my community closer to flourishing, closer to my own well-being. But if the process is corrupted, then you're doing something that you think is in your own best interest, but it is not. So it's agenda-driven, is your argument? My argument is that the peer review process should absolutely positively not be agenda-driven. The peer review process should be something that we can rely upon to be neutral. For example, global climate change is a great example of that. What the science is, very few people, the, the science is very complicated, so we need to be able to trust those journals, and we need to be able to trust the articles that come out of those journals. Now, the public policy decisions that are made on the basis of that, that is obviously agenda-driven, but the science should never be agenda-driven. Well, with your colleague, Helen Pluckrose, who's also the editor of uh, Aereo magazine, uh, you, you submitted an article explaining what you had done, and you said, all of you, we had become fluent in its language, meaning this pseudo, if you will, social science and its customs. What is part of that language? Part of that language, it's both vocabulary, so words like hegemonic, patriarchy, anything with patriarchy is always always good. There are certain terms that they use, but more than the vocabulary, it's that certain conclusions are acceptable and far more likely to be published. For example, men are bad, white men are bad, heterosexuality is problematic. Oh, that's another great word, problematic. Every, everything is problematic. So if you want to figure out how to write a paper in grievance studies, you just find find things that you do in life and then problematize them. So you can't just be that you go to the, the dog park. There has to be some kind of a problem there. So you, you problematize it as a, as a Petri dish for rape culture, canine rape culture. The language is that the, the papers all forwarded a conclusion, and the conclusion was to somehow problematize something and then we dressed it up in fancy words, and we cited the literature that was already there, and we made a problem out of something, and then that problem was in alignment or it comported with ideological agendas that they already have, whiteness, maleness. You know, putting in one of our papers, it was uh, putting white men, white heterosexual men in college classrooms on the floor in chains as a form of experiential reparations. And then prioritizing their emails and not answering their emails, etc. So you find a problem or you make a problem out of something that's not there, and then you dress it up. Now, many people listening to this program would assume and would accuse you, at least, of being right-wing conservative Republican. But in fact, you declare quite the opposite, both you and your colleagues. You are not conservative at all, are you? No, I'm, I'm a liberal. I've never voted for a Republican in my life. And I think that this is a form of tribalism that we saw. You know, I, I wrote a book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and was very involved in the new, the new atheist movement. And I was always attacked by many on the right as being a liberal. Um, and now that I've attacked those whose moral impulses I share, but the rigor of how they got there to their conclusions I do not share and that's putting it most charitably, now I'm all of a sudden a conservative. This is not about 
being a liberal or being a conservative. It's about bodies of knowledge that we need to rely upon so that we can construct better lives. And what's happening right now is that the the academy has been really overrun by ideologues, and they're using non-rigorous methods to, to forward conclusions that are both morally repugnant and unsubstantiated by the evidence. They're totally untethered to reality. I was inclined to suggest that this was purely an issue with the social sciences, but evidently it's not when we get into the realm of climate control. Then hard science is going the same direction. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I don't have the data for that because we didn't submit papers to those to the hard sciences. But the feminist glaciology paper, and I hope you talked to Dr. Lindsay about that, that paper argued that female ways of knowing should be included in the sciences and astronomy, specifically astrology and tarot readings. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I understand that there was actually uh, reference in your article, I believe it was your article, into listening to the snow. Is that correct? So that is very interesting. It's actually incorrect. That is the infamous feminist glaciology paper. The authors of that paper stated some pretty, pretty absurd things and again, the problem is that if you can't differentiate bogus scholarship from actual scholarship, that's a problem. So we modeled that paper when we argued that there should be female ways of knowing for astronomy. So we should include witchcraft and horoscope readings. And the uh, reviewers' comments, which we posted online, they were very encouraging. And that paper would have been resubmitted for publication. They had requested it several times before the Wall Street Journal caught us. So the problem is that the sciences have also been corrupted by this. It's just the zeitgeist. It's the spirit of the times. And the spirit of the times is that the traditional ways that we have come to knowledge are masculine, colonialist, etc., and they need to be disrupted. And that concept of disruption is very, very popular in their literature. It's, it's pervasive throughout their literature. So any, any paper that disrupts a way of knowing, specifically as male, Western, or colonialist, has an increased likelihood of getting accepted, to say the least. You wrote collectively, while our papers are all outlandish or intentionally broken in significant ways, it is important to recognize that they blend in almost perfectly with others uh, in disciplines. Uh, you also go on to write later, we also needed to write papers that took risks to test certain hypotheses, such as the fact that the acceptance itself makes a statement about the problem we're studying. In other words, so you, it was a necessary maneuver for you to do this to, in fact, prove how ridiculous the state of things or affairs have gotten in academia. And then you are chastised and attacked for it. What is your standing right now with your own university, the Portland State University, at this moment? Well, the formal investigation, I was found guilty of not going to the Institutional Review Board. And the other charge of, of fabrication of data, I have not heard, and I am still waiting to hear something. So hopefully, uh, obviously, it's a very uh, stress-filled um, time for me. So I'm still waiting to hear that. I, I will say that, that it's extremely uncomfortable every time I walk in there. Um, my colleagues have published uh, an anonymous hit piece on me in the student newspaper. And, you know, I walk around campus and I see pictures of me with a big nose and, um, you know, saying that I, I'm a pro-life, Trump-supporting Republican. None of those things are true. 
You know, this is a very hostile environment for me right now. Have you become Oregon's version of Jordan Peterson? Boy, I'm asked that a lot. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Or myself to Peterson or anyone. Look, this. I just think that there's a problem in this literature. Uh, I think it needs to be fixed. I I love the university system. I think it's the gem of American exceptionalism. And right now, what's happening is that the university is in crisis, and that crisis is is primarily driven by left wing ideologues who are seeking ideological purity. They're not conducting rigorous scholarship. They're smearing anybody and everybody who disagrees with them about anything as racist, bigots, sexists, homophobes. And it's just, that's just not true. And they're hurting people. And what's worse than that is that I'm deeply concerned about the students. They're teaching students things that they claim is knowledge, and it simply is not knowledge. It's make-believe land. Where does, and, this, where does this leftist self-infatuation come from? Well, I just tweeted out a piece about that today, part of it. It's that there aren't that many conservatives left in the university, and if they are, they're certainly not going to come out about it. So, you know, first they came to the conservatives, and then they came to the moderates, and now they're after the liberals. So, Of which you, you consider yourself most ardently to be a liberal. Absolutely. Okay. I check all check all the boxes for that. So the problem is that there's a death of nuance in the universities. Students never really hear the other side of the issue. They never really hear the other side of whatever whatever the moral issue is. And I've been told in no uncertain terms when I've been brought up on violations by the university that I'm not to render my opinion about certain protected classes, for example. Um, to that, I responded. Well, what should I do if I'm asked my opinion about slavery, right? So, so there are entire wings of university architecture that are dedicated to an activist agenda. But if somebody presents a side of an issue that they don't like, then they will weaponize the mechanisms of the university against you to silence you. What happened yeah. to the free speech movement of Berkeley of the early 60s? How did we get to this anathema? I don't know the genealogy of how we got into this, this catastrophe, but I do know that unless these disciplines fix themselves, the problem is only going to get worse. So, for example, if we did this to civil engineers, about bridge building, I don't think it's possible that we could have done it. But if we did and we slipped papers by them, then I think they would have thanked us. In fact, we were just at a conference in Dresden, Germany, and many people were most emphatic that we should try to get our papers in their journals because if we did, they said that there's a problem and they'd have to fix it. That is exactly the opposite attitude of what I've encountered. It's not, oh, thanks, you've pointed out our problem. It's to smear me as a racist or a homophobe, to attack my motivations, to say that I'm unethical, to claim that the journal editors are human subjects, which is a bizarre way of looking at the problem. In instead of being honest about the nature of the problem, it's to attack the person who tries to point out the problem. And the consequence for that is that the whole institution of knowledge production becomes jeopardized. Have you confronted persons with reasoned data, legitimate data, and had anyone who would describe themselves as left or progressive acknowledge that 
the information you've presented is orthodox and correct and then has subsequently amended their thinking as a result, or has that never happened? That's a great question. Um, so a few things. We've had people, to my utter astonishment, actually defend the papers. So, you know, one of the papers that we wrote was fat bodybuilding that claimed that there should be a category in professional bodybuilding called fat bodybuilding, where fat people, they don't use the word obesity because they think obesity is a medicalized narrative. We argue that fat people should go and display their roles of fat on stage with competitive bodybuilders because it's just another tissue. And we had people who think this is a great idea. So... <laughs> How can you reason with that? What are some of the examples of the most absurd things that you've seen been expected to be entertained? Well, that men should insert foreign objects into their rectums to remediate transphobia, as if there were any kind of a relationship between that activity and one's attitude about trans people. But the other thing is that that, that paper was accepted for publication, but it had a very, very small end, the number of people it allegedly interviewed to come to that conclusion. So even if one accepts that utterly absurd pun intended, asinine conclusion. The data that we provided should not substantiate that conclusion. I'll give you an example of another paper. We wrote a paper that said four men masturbated four hours a day for a year and took the implicit bias test every two hours about their attitudes of women in science before and after watching different types of pornography. And then we devised a scale about their opinions, and we had people saying that this is a reasonable activity. That, that I mean, it's so absurd, it's even breaking my brain to think about it. We had people argue that it would be reasonable for people to engage in thousands of hours of masturbation and take the implicit bias test about women in science every two hours for a year. <laughs> I'm biting my lip here. You don't know, Peter. What? I, can't control, I, can't, I can't control anymore. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh gosh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Man, how many hours of laughter have you been able to exercise? As speaking of other employments for. Oh my gosh. Okay, so okay, I gotta get some sobriety here. Ready? Okay. Just a few minutes ago, I asked you have you had more or less any wins with being able to confront people with false data and uh, amend it? A very commercial example of this, where people have changed their, their thinking or at least modified their position, would be David Rubin of the Rubin Report, who had Larry Elder. Larry Elder came out with facts and statistics regarding homicides in Chicago and, and other factors. And on the spot, you could see, and David Rubin has uh, acknowledged this, Dave Rubin, since then, 
his mind going into overdrive, realizing that he had nothing substantial to say as a counterpoint. And thereafter, even though he still considers himself to be very much a libertarian, had to amend his attitude toward things that formerly he had just taken for granted. Have there been no wins in your situation where you've been able to present something and people have recognized the absurdity and said, you know what, I hate to admit it, but Bogosian's right. So two things. First, if your listeners have not seen that interview with Dave Rubin and Larry Elder, I would urge them to do that. The first thing that comes to my mind is how much integrity Dave Rubin had to not delete the scene, because many people would have just deleted it. The second thing that comes to my mind is I had the same reaction. I couldn't give a response to Larry Elder about the systemic racism and to those claims. But the third and, and really most important thing is this is what it means to be rational. What it means to be rational is to change your mind, is to be willing to reconsider your beliefs and change your mind in the basis of evidence or lack of evidence. And so what Rubin did subsequent to that, I would argue, is just become, a ra- become more rational. Right? In, in the Gorgias, Plato says that it is better to be refuted than to refute. He says that's the greater gain of the two. And so we have lost something in our culture that's so ideologically driven and, and the thing that we've, we've lost is a willingness to change our minds about something. I think, and others have suggested, that we are on the brink of a national movement, basically an awakening uh, of many who proudly are on the left or progressive who are saying, yes, we're on the left. We are for progressive issues. Uh, we are for equality in every form that is, is merited and and, and uh, apt and appropriate. But at the same time, we're not going to just swallow anything that comes down the pike. Do you think we are on the brink of that? Or do you think we are a few years out from, from this revelation for most people? I, I, think, I think we are on the cusp of that. And I think that the markers for that are if people are willing to sign their name to things, if people are willing to, to put their names on their line, I am, you know, John Smith, and what you have done here is wrong, and I am not a racist, I am not a bigot, and it is acceptable for me, not only acceptable, but in a college atmosphere, I have every right in the college environment to demand evidence when my professors make claims. Students should have every right to take exception to what they're learning in college. I want to bring in a concept that I just think is so important that it often gets overlooked in this this conversation. The reason why this is so difficult to overthrow is because of what my friend Brett Weinstein calls idea laundering. Idea laundering is the process by which somebody has a moral impulse. They have some moral idea about one thing or another. And what they do is they get together with other people who have the same moral idea. And they either start a journal or write up whatever their moral idea is, and they publish it in a journal. And then it comes out on the other side as knowledge. So what's happening is we have a bunch of people who have very strong moral opinions about something, and many of those opinions I happen to to share myself. I think they're based in very legitimate concerns about racism and structural inequalities that we absolutely must address. But what they've done is that they've taken these ideas 
and they've idealized them, and they've come out the other side as knowledge. And one of the reasons that this problem is so entrenched and so difficult to fix is when you ask people how they know things or what their evidence is, they point to these bogus journals and these bogus articles in the bogus journals as knowledge. But they're not knowledge. They haven't come about as the result of a reliable process. How do you think social science and its governing opinions is simply a matter of fashion? In other words, if you want to be in the accepted group, you just put on the pretense, even if you don't really believe this material, that you pretend you do, and it's automatic acceptance. A lot of it is a kind of evangelism, and a lot of it is really, frankly, it's a, we've created a climate of fear on our college campuses. And that climate of fear is that when people are afraid to say what they believe. And the problem is that it's not only that the university professors buy into that, it's that many administrators buy into that. And there are institutions that can be weaponized, like bias response teams, that if people step out of line, the consequence of that is that they get reported. And those reports are held at the police station by the police. There's a culture of fear, and they can get reported through bias response teams. They can be reported through uh, offices of diversity and inclusion. And then those, they can also be brought up on Title IX violations. And Title IX violations are federal, and they're very, very, very serious violations. I think the greatest form of diversity that's, that's in, in lack of uh, evident supply is diversity of thought. I see a dearth of diversity of thought at the university. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly scary. So this took me a long time to figure out because I would go to these meetings. And by the way, there are so many meetings about diversity and virtually no meetings, if, if literally no meetings about how do you grade somebody? How do you deal with an unruly student? It's all diversity. Right. So I would go to these meetings and I could never understand, well, geez, why isn't there a Trump supporter? Why isn't there somebody who holds a heterodox view on this panel? The reason for that is they don't make neologisms. You know, they don't make two words. They don't stick two words together. They, what they do is they change the meanings of words. They change the meanings of racism to be structural. They change the meaning of diversity. So diversity means exactly the opposite of what you think diversity means. It means homogeneity of, of opinion. So there's diversity of skin color and sexual orientation, which who wouldn't want that? But what they mean is that people who have the same opinion. And if you happen to look differently, if you happen to be black, for example, and you have a different opinion, and I've seen this happen with my friend Faisal Al-Muttar, who's from Iraq, and Majid Nawaz, then you're called an Uncle Tom, right? You're called a house N-word. Mm. So they don't have any toleration for people who are members of minority groups who don't toe the party line. And we, I, to mention Larry Elder again, you see that with Larry Elder as well. So when they use the word diversity, they don't really mean what you'd think they mean by diversity. They mean homogeneity of opinion. There are dogmas that are pushed right now as fact, and those dogmas are not facts. An example of that that's very ideologically driven is microaggressions. And there has been, there's a paper by a guy by the name of Scott Lillenfeld in 2017, Strong, uh, Strong Claims and Adequate Evidence. I think that's the name of it. So there are actually data points against believing in some of these things, which is very different than saying, well, geez, I don't, I don't know if this is true or not, so we better in institutionalize it as some kind of a prophylactic. But instead, that there are 
data that show that the practices, these ideologically driven practices that are being institutionalized in our universities are actually making students less resilient and they're actually harming people. Mm. That's why it's so important to formulate your beliefs on the basis of evidence. That's also why it's so important that we need bodies of literature that we can rely upon to guide us to the truth. With the reapplication of words, as you've alluded to, on your worst day, do you envision that we're heading towards a truly Orwellian society? No, and I'll tell you why. Because I do not think that this is sustainable. I do not think that any ideology that does not root itself in a dialogue. These folks happen to believe that speech is violence. I mean, it's already Orwellian and dystopian, but if you mean it in the true sense of Orwellian and dystopian, I don't see that as happening. I do not see this ideology as capable of sustaining itself. I think it will burn itself out. And the reason is because it's not rationally derivable and there's simply too much evidence against the claims that are made. This is Watching America. We've been speaking with Dr. Peter Bogosian. When we return, we'll hear from one of Peter's co-conspirators, mathematician and author, Dr. James Lindsay. This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell. So far on today's show, you've heard from Peter Bogosian, and now we have Dr. James Lindsay on the line. Uh, I just want to say, first of all, that uh, the the audience at this point is well-versed in in what you've been attempting to do, and uh, I am just incredibly intrigued by your qualifications. Uh, first of all, I have to say that, uh, that math was a complete anathema to me. I mean, it was, it was just a dreadful experience. However, I've always enjoyed mathematical people. The one thing that is is absolutely at the top of the list for qualifications for somebody who is studying math and employs their daily thinking about math is exactitude. You have to be precise. And it would seem to me that one of the things that may have attracted you to this pursuit of, if you will, mockery of a sort uh, for intentional detection later is your great reverence for things being precise. Am I correct? Yeah, I think there, there's, there's definitely an element to that. Uh, particularly my background in math, I was, I'm what's called a combinatoricist, which is a huge word with many syllables that nobody knows what it means. This is a particular branch of mathematics that's uniquely interested in finding patterns and describing them in, in, in kind of salient terms, in terms that people can, can look at and say, oh, that makes sense. Rather than this you know, purely abstract idea, it's the idea that we we're going we're, we're gonna to put some kind of concrete structure underneath 
identities or numbers or sequences of numbers or something like that. The Fibonacci sequence is a very famous example. Uh, many people are familiar with that one. And so it's of great interest to combinatorists. And so the not just the precision, but also the precision as applied to identifying patterns and being able to explain and thus reproduce them, I think was integral to my ability to do the role that I played in the in the whistleblowing effort we, we engaged in. Are you by nature uh, a quantitative person versus qualitative appreciator when it comes to research? You know, I think I'm kind of both. I've always sort of had a foot in both worlds. Even in high school, it was uh, a really interesting kind of rivalry between my math and physics teacher and my English and humanities teacher as to whose camp I belonged in more fully. So I kind of have a deep appreciation for both. Of course, if we want to find out right answers about the world, we need to use rigorous methodologies, and many of those end up needing to be done quantitatively or at least statistically. So when it comes to figuring out you know, difficult questions about psychological or sociological phenomena or if it were physical or chemistry or anything else, uh, we we really do need rigorous methods. We do need to defer to the empirical evidence and the data and the proper analysis of those. Qualitative methods provide us some insight, but I see them more as a starting place than a finishing point when we're trying to get to the bottom of hard questions about reality. Now, as a result of your spurious articles, intentionally so, I might add, for those who are just joining us, um, your colleague, certainly Peter Bogosian, has suffered severe consequences and is undergoing right now uh, extreme scrutiny. Some would say, to a cruel extent, an unfair and being ostracized by his fellow um, colleagues in academia. Have you been the recipient of any such penalties for your endeavors in this vein? Not formal penalties, no. I don't have uh, institutional structure over me that can punish me. So the kinds of penalties that I would have suffered, if that's the right word, are largely social. Um, I have a significant number of friends who are pretty invested in sort of a uh, social justice mindset who uh, with them, I've become something of a persona non grata. I don't get invited to participate in their, you know, get-togethers or parties. And if I do show up at something where they are, they kind of avoid me. And some of them have outright said they don't want to be in the same room with me anymore. And there's been some tension in some of those relationships, some of which were quite close friendships. For the most part, it's not been that. It's just been misrepresentations of what we've done in, you know, media or on social media. Have you ever confronted persons uh, in a civil manner, obviously, and said, hey, what's the problem here? Can't you tolerate sure. somebody thinking differently? Sure. I've, I've, I've gone about that a few times and in different ways, and we've tried to have conversations about specific issues with a couple of people who my relationship was more close with. And it goes. It doesn't always go particularly well. I'm able to maintain one of those um, kind of uh, delicate relationships with some of these people where as long as certain topics don't come up, everything's okay. So sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes people just say they can't share a room with me anymore and that's final. And even trying to confront them just makes it more more contentious. So in those cases, I figure the best thing to do is to let it be until something moves on its own. From the micro to the macro, 
Do you not think that that is essentially what we're seeing all across America at this time, is extreme and massive amounts of the need for confirmation bias? I think that that is exactly the problem we're seeing. We're seeing people that have become so invested in the concerns around their politics or their their religion, but it's more politics these days, that they feel um, great enmity. I think it's motivated almost by existential fear that people who have divergent political beliefs from them are bad people who are, are the source of many of the ills of society and that associating with them will cause that moral pollution to get into them, that they might start to think the wrong way or they might contribute to the harms of society that are going to do us all in. It's a really catastrophic uh, moment in terms of social cohesion, and I think a lot of it comes down to people being uncomfortable to reach across the aisle and shake hands and put other aspects of relationships first and think about what really what really matters, and then be able to have these kinds of discussions in open-ended and curious and heartfelt ways as opposed to as contentious arguments. Some people have suggested that we are in the midst of an intellectual civil war. Do you think that's overstatement? Um, I don't know if it's an intellectual civil war. I think it's a cultural civil war, and I don't think that's an overstatement. As a matter of fact, I've been calling it that for a couple of years. Um, we have definitely a clash of worldviews. And there's more than one happening at once. There's the extreme polarization between right and left that I think Helen and I described as, as being called existential polarization, where each side sees the other as an existential threat that cannot be countenanced because it's seen as so threatening that to, to give in to any right-wing ideas as a left-wing person would be the end of civilization as we know it, and vice versa. The, um, the unwillingness to recognize that even a broken clock is correct twice a day. Right. Yeah. It turns out, and I think people have a sense of this, I wrote this a long time ago, uh, is that people do know that a broken clock is right at least twice a day. But the problem is, is people also know that a clock that is actually functioning, but that is set to the wrong time is never right. And I think that's <laughs> great. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I think that the people are perceiving that and they're proceeding with a lot of fear. I'm not sure what has caused this. It may be just the overwhelming uh, increase in access to information, the democratization of voices, and not knowing how to deal with that yet. This could be a very Gutenberg kind of moment. And if it is, it has a, a period of time during which we adjust, and then we start to figure out the rules of the new information economy. And if it's not, then who knows what's going on? It, it's hard not to be optimistic as I watch and I hear, I mean, I get emails, I get notes sent to me almost every day. It was for a while, every single day, probably a few dozen every day of people telling me that, you know, they don't feel like they're ready to be able to speak out, mm. but, but they agree with us. This is necessary. It's time for a change. I talk to my friends, especially I hear this from my friends who are right wing and libertarian, um, that they don't care what somebody's politics are anymore. We've got to go back to being friends first, and then we can worry about politics later and discuss politics in a different way. So I have a lot of reasons to feel hopeful that I, I think things are going to start getting better. There was an old episode of Twilight Zone years and years, decades ago, uh, and I can't remember all the details, but I vaguely recall it. There was, it was an episode about a comedian 
who wanted everything he said to be, you know, well taken with mirth and good humor, and was, until in the episode he's actually serious about items and those around him will not recognize it and they continue to laugh hysterically at everything he says. Now that can be the bane and the consequence of doing something humorous. Has that happened to you and your colleagues, uh, in particular obviously Helen Pluckrose and um, Peter Bogoshin? Have you found yourselves being absolutely completely straight as a die serious about something and then people assume that you are actually being ridiculous? Helen, I don't think has had this problem, and I don't think she's likely to, just because of her personality and the fact that she is such a straight shooter. Mm. Um, Peter and I actually have. We had an academic paper in philosophy that we had written before all of this took place, and we had submitted it to one journal, and then we got busy and stopped messing with it. And so we've submitted it a couple of times since, and it's just not being considered, and the, one of the editors has informed us that one of the reasons it's not being considered is because it's hard to know if we're joking. And um, I think that our our academic publishing career in that sense may be over. Um, it's difficult not to be known for this kind of thing once you become that. But, yeah, and it's, it's, it's particularly been, I think, more for me because I actually have really gone into the humor side of it. I try to be humorous. Mm-hmm. I try not to be too serious. And so it's very difficult for people to tell sometimes when I'm being serious and when I'm being satirical. That does occasionally work against me. But so far it's been a, a minor problem, if anything. And, and that's the danger with satirical material because uh, it can be sometimes a gnat's hair away from uh, reality or bordering on something from the onion. And I, I can imagine that you guys have found yourself in, in that predicament. You did say in a recent article of Aero magazine, you, uh, you posited that there should be university departments and courses devoted to conspiracy theories. Well, how is that meant? Are you being facetious? Are you being serious? So would you care to address that for a moment? Yeah. So in a sense, I think I was mostly being facetious with that. It was being facetious with the attempt to, to make a point. And the point was that I think we all kind of understand why we don't have university departments that push conspiracy theories, by which I don't mean university departments that, that, that study them as a phenomenon. You know, why do people make conspiracy theories? What commonalities do they have? I mean, university departments that actually push conspiracy theories and and do so-called research into them, like you might have the conspiracy theorists do on their YouTube channels or their blog or whatever. I think it's clear why, but I wanted to articulate why we don't have such departments. And it's because they don't follow the rigorous rules of knowledge production that we've all agreed upon more or less through, you know, at some point following the enlightenment. I don't want to say that Hume wrote his famous dictum about committing sophistry to the flames, and then all of a sudden the whole world was different. It wasn't an immediate switch. But we've had this sense for a long time that there are are rigorous means for producing knowledge, and then there are ways to cheat that system, usually by claiming special insight or special authority or using non-rigorous methods. And so I wanted to make the point that we don't have university departments dedicated to pushing conspiracy theories, and we don't want them and we know why we don't welcome them. And yet these departments that we have that push what we call grievance studies, so gender studies, critical race theory in particular, post-colonial theory, and so on, these actually are departments that are pushing 
conspiracy theories. And they are pushing like the patriarchy from from feminism is largely a conspiracy theory. Uh, the revision, the revisionist approach to understanding U.S. history through critical race theory, which believes that every time a minority has been given uh, some kind of new right or new opportunity or something's been, been worked out to their benefit at a structural level, that's been because white people in power wanted to make themselves look good. Stuff like this is actually a conspiracy theory. And they are making these same kinds of errors in terms of rigorous knowledge production that true conspiracy theorists that they believe that 9-11 was an inside job or that, that the government's poisoning us with jetliner chemtrails, the, it's the same errors in reasoning. It's the same bypasses to rigorous knowledge production. And yet we do allow those departments a place in the university. And so the question is, why? Why, if we are so clear on not inviting true conspiracy theories in the normal sense in the university, are we so willing to let conspiracy theories of a certain type, if they have to do with matters of identity, to have privileged position within the university? James, I'd like to envision and certainly hope for both you and Peter Boghossian and for Helen Pluckrose that there may be a lecture tour across the United States at some point. Any thoughts in that regard? Yeah, we actually have considered that. Um, Peter and I have a book that should be coming out this fall. It's available for pre-order already. It's called How to Have Impossible Conversations. <laughs> I love it. To, yeah, to be able to talk to people with whom you disagree uh, about divisive topics, politics, religion, philosophy, morals, and so on. And so we will probably or certainly be doing some kind of touring for that. And we have um, a documentary film being made uh, about the work that we did by our, our fourth partner, who is a documentary filmmaker from Australia named Mike Nana, N-A-Y-N-A. And he has been following us around and contributing and discussing these topics and trying to learn from us and then produce video material that communicates the ideas that we have in a way that reaches people since pretty much the beginning, um, October of 2017, or maybe in September of 2017, if I can't recall correctly. So we have a documentary film coming, which is likely also to produce some amount of touring and lecturing. And then independently of both of those, we've been having a number, first of all, of people at different universities or different different uh, professional groups reaching out and asking if we'll come speak. And we like that. Yes, please invite us, cover our expenses, maybe a small fee, and then we're happy to show up and, and talk to you guys or to whoever and go take the show on the road, so to speak, to tell people what we did, why it's important, why it matters, and so on. And the ambition is actually to continue to do that through this year and next. So far, it's primarily we have gone on shows like Joe Rogan's show and we went on Glenn Beck's show, you know, kind of across the political spectrum. We appeared on NPR at one point in October last year. So it's mostly been that so far, but we would love to go do speaking events at universities in particular to talk to students directly about what's going on in the academy around them and inform them on, on what's happening and what they can do with and about it. That was the mathematician and author Dr. James Lindsay. We now have heard from two of the trio behind the so-called squared academic hoax. The third is the editor of ARIO magazine, Helen Pluckrose. 
Unfortunately, we had Helen on the line from overseas and the audio quality suffered. But we'd like nonetheless to give Helen's perspective here as we close out the show with a snippet from our conversation. We are so simplistic, we humans. If there's a lot of nonsense coming out of disciplines around gender and race and sexuality, it's going to give grounds for people to dismiss any, anything on that. And this is where we tend to polarise so simply. And, and if something is coming up which says that everything is patriarchal, men have an, a natural advantage in absolutely everything, and it's, it's silly, then people then get resistant to looking at sound evidence that there is a gender bias anywhere, or that racism does still exist, or that trans people do face discrimination and language is, is often alienating. So we need to be particularly careful when we're looking at issues around social justice, like racial and gender and sexual equality, that we make everything as measured and evidence-based as possible. You've been listening to Watching America. Many thanks to our guests. Watching America is made possible in part by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Our sound engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer extraordinaire is Paul Bieber. Our scenic producer and magical editor is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer is Chuck Dowd, chief of content Heather Mazzoni, CEO Bert Schmidt. I am Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is produced at WHRV in Norfolk, Virginia. Find extended conversations with today's guests at whrv.org slash watching America.